Brothers and sisters, as we continue in Romans 13, we continue also, obviously, in the third part of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, which means we continue to hear instruction on how we are called to live in response to the gospel with joy and gratitude for the salvation that is ours full and free in Christ. Because we are still in the flesh, still having a sinful nature, we will always be tempted and given to return to the thought of making a contribution to our salvation. As we do what is right, we might be tempted to think, look what I have done, look what I can contribute to my salvation. That's the pride that remains in us. Uh, Look what I can contribute. Um, Or, as we do wrong, as we give in to temptation and fall to sin, we might be tempted to think, woe is me, I am ashamed, I, I am in despair for my sin. Well, neither, of course, is the correct view of the Christian life. Our salvation is full and free in Christ by his cross and resurrection. As we do what is right, we must do it from joy and gratitude. As we fall to sin, we must certainly grieve, once again, seeing our sin laid upon Christ. But we must quickly return by prayer and confession to claim what is ours by faith, what we have not lost, nor can we ever lose the atoning blood and the imputed righteousness of Christ our Savior. When I was in school, we used to play uh, King of the Hill uh, at recess time. The hill was a a great mound of snow uh, piled up by the snowplow as it uh, cleared the parking lot. Uh, The object of the game was uh, to be the, the lone person at the top of the hill, and thus king of the, of the hill. Um, um, uh, as one person succeeded in becoming uh, the king, uh, uh, by knocking off the, the current king, well, the game would go on as others continued to climb the hill uh, and dethrone uh, the king. Um, I see it as an illustration in a couple of ways. Uh, on one hand, apart from Christ... We are always trying and failing to climb the hill of salvation as if we might be the king at the top. On the other hand, as a kind of reverse illustration, when it comes to our salvation, Christ is king and no one can bring him down. He stands at the top and instead of knocking us down, he picks us up as dead at the bottom of the hill and brings us to the top to live and reign with him. That's a glorious teaching of God's word, that believers in Christ are those who reign with Christ. But it's the evil one who would knock us down by telling us that we must climb the hill. Uh, And when he does, when he knocks us off the hill, it's either on one side of the hill where we tumble down to pride or on the other side of the hill where we tumble down to despair, where our sin makes us forget that we have an eternal standing with Christ by faith and by faith alone. So let's remember these things as we continue to hear instruction 
from, uh, regarding the, uh, the Christian life, how Christ himself would have us live until the evil one, remember he's already a defeated enemy, but the day will come when, when he is cast out forever, cast even into the pit of hell. Until then, how shall we live? What is the will and, and the call of the king that we might answer out of our thankfulness and love for him? First in these next verses is the call to love. The call to love. Verse 8 reads, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I am taking this command to be aimed at the church and uh, applied first to our relationships within the fellowship of believers. And I'm doing so because Paul writes of loving each other. Uh, If you're addressing your children and uh, calling them to love each other, the application is first of all within your family. It's, It's not that the same call to love doesn't apply to their friends. But if you call your children to love each other, then you are addressing their relationship to each other within the family. In the same way, the context here is the church. Paul is addressing the believers at Rome, calling them to love each other. It's not that the same instruction doesn't apply to uh, others outside the church, but love for one another must begin in the church. Our Lord himself said in John 13, verse 35, I'm sure you know the verse. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First of all, here Jesus is calling his disciples indeed to be his disciples. A disciple is one who follows the teaching of his master so that others watching his behavior and listening to his words will recognize, ah, I, yes, I, I, can, I can tell who you study with. I can tell who your teacher is by the way you act. Uh, you must be a disciple of Gamaliel. Uh, by the way you speak, the things you teach, uh, you must be a disciple of Nicodemus. And so with Jesus, he names this as a key mark, we might even say the key mark of those who are his disciples, that they love one another. Therefore, secondly, Jesus is calling his disciples to be his witnesses to the world in this way, by loving one another. And here is where the, the failure to love is so very sad, uh, especially when it happens in the church. A sin is not only the failure to do the positive, but also doing the negative. This is what sin is and has been since, uh, since sin entered the world. Man was created in the image of God. Man was created in the likeness of God. And yet, when man fell to sin, he did not lose completely the image of God. And so, mankind began not only to fail to image God rightly, but began to give a false image of God, and so dishonoring God. In the same way, it is a great honor to be a disciple of Christ, but it is a great responsibility as well to be a a Christian 
uh, bearing the very name of Christ, uh, to be admitted into membership in the church, is to enjoy all the benefits afforded by Christ. And it puts us into a position to do great things for Christ and his kingdom. That's the somewhat mysterious statement from Jesus uh, when he says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater things than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So to be a member of the church is to be in a position to do great things for Christ. But it also puts us in a position to do harm to the honor and the reputation of Christ. It's like a child born or adopted into a family, so to acquire the family name, he enjoys the privileges of the family, but he is also put in a position where he can do great harm to the family name. Well, so it is for us as disciples of Christ, as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. Will we uphold the honor of Christ's name? Or will we be those who use our place in the family to harm the family, the family name and the reputation of Christ himself? There will be times when we must submit to one another in love. There will be times when we must agree to disagree. There will be times when times that will call for great patience. There will be times when we must absorb the hurt receive the blow, and not start a fight, especially if the fight is taken into the street where the world can see it. So let let this be our guiding principle. Owe no one anything except to love each other. The Apostle Paul teaches something in 1 Corinthians 6, where he, uh, something similar, where he rebukes the Corinthians, first of all, for having sharp disputes within the church. He says, the fact that you have disputes means you're defeated already. But what makes it worse, he goes on to teach, is is when the dispute is taken into the public square. Paul specifically mentions the, the civil courts. Why take your disputes into the civil courts when you are those who are reigning with Christ and will one day judge angels? But the principle applies more broadly when when the world becomes aware that the church is fighting So if they will know we are Christians by our love, then by our hatred of each other, by our fighting with one another, do we not harm the name of Christ rather than honoring our Lord? So he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and this before the world. Finally, on this first point, something should be said about the words, owe no one anything. Uh, There are those who take this as a a prohibition of loaning and borrowing money within the church. Some see it as uh, the same prohibition even everywhere in the Christian life. Uh, But that can hardly be Paul's intent here, and here's why. First, There is nowhere else such a prohibition in the New Testament. Second, there are laws in the Old Testament regulating the loaning of money, even prohibiting the charge of interest as one brother loans to another. 
uh, loaning and borrowing money uh, was surely a regular practice in Israel, only it was regulated to make sure it was done with mercy and, and, and injustice. Third, there is, there is another way to explain Paul's words here. Granted, it's better not to borrow money. And, and that would be Paul's meaning here, or at least part of it. But, but what Paul would seem to be doing is, is using some, you might call it poetic hyperbole. Uh, it would be like a mother saying to her child, don't you do another thing until you clean your room. Well, she doesn't mean don't walk to your room and open the door until you have cleaned your room. <laughs> so in this way, Paul is emphasizing the importance, the crucial nature of love within the church. And he is also declaring the call to love as a debt to be paid. We owe love to one another. We owe love to one another. We owe love because we have been loved, loved by God in Christ Jesus. If we read Paul in this way, in Romans 13, 8, we can then find a parallel verse in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, when he writes, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Is there not a degree of hyperbole in this well-known verse? Does it not take faith in order to love as we ought? Uh, Is not hope, even hope of eternal life, one of the things that allows us to love sacrificially? Which is Paul's point earlier in in 1 Corinthians 13. But, But love is just that important for Paul to write, but the greatest of these is love. In another sense, he is working the logic backward, which also fits with his early teaching in this passage. If we have faith and hope, but love doesn't follow, then neither do we really have faith and hope. In this way, love is the greatest because it it finishes the equation, so to speak, so that by love, faith and hope are truly found in us. Love is the greatest as it stands at the end point of faith and hope. So Paul is not prohibiting the practice of loaning and borrowing money. Again, it's certainly better not to borrow money. Let us learn and let our children be taught to live within our means. Let us not covet those uh, with greater wealth so that, we, so that we so long for and, and even demand some higher standard of living that will tempt us to borrow money in order to have this year what maybe God is calling us to wait for, to have next year or in five years or in ten. Instead, Paul's point, again, is to give the call to love within the church in the context of debt, a debt we owe ultimately to Christ himself, even though we cannot repay it and are not expected to repay it, we are called to remember that debt and so to respond to it each day by loving one another within the church, even as we have been loved by God in Christ. Next, the second point, the enduring law of God. This is an important point because 
There are those who think and, and teach that uh, we must set aside the, the moral law of God, which is what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, in other places in his teaching, uh, Paul talks about walking by the Spirit, or living by the Spirit, or following the Spirit. And this is misunderstood by, by some to mean that, that we don't need the Ten Commandments anymore. We can just pray and, and trust the Spirit to, to prompt us and lead us to do the right thing. But that ignores the, the teaching of God's Word, that uh, the Spirit works by the Word. We covered this in, in the, uh, uh, the grown-ups uh, Sunday school uh, class this morning. Uh, the Spirit works by the Word, and the Word finds its power in the Spirit, Word and Spirit. It's, it's a very important teaching of God's Word, and therefore of the Reformed faith. Uh, in the beginning at creation, the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep, and God spoke, commanding, speaking the world into existence, Word and Spirit. As Christ came into this world as the Word incarnate, He did not begin his ministry except by being baptized by the Holy Spirit, Word and Spirit. Um, As the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, what happened? The apostles began to preach the Word of God, Word and Spirit. So we cannot set aside the, the law of God and just be led by the Spirit. Instead, the Spirit works through the Word. The word without the spirit will just be words in a book, as it is for many who are yet in unbelief, or words on a plaque on the wall. But with the spirit and by the spirit, the word of God is powerfully at work within us. So here's a place in God's word where the Apostle Paul explicitly mentions the Ten Commandments and calls us to obey them. And to obey them because this is how we love each other, starting in the church. This is first how we love God and love him with joy and thankfulness for his love for us. But Paul's point here is that we love God by loving each other. And this is an important point because I I think we tend to think of God's law and our obedience to God's law only within our relationship to God. And it is true that that our obedience is how we love God. Jesus even said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We we, we can't just act all spiritual and say, oh, I love God. He's great. He did this for me. He did that for me. I just so love God. But then not give our obedience to him. But isn't it amazing that as God calls us to love him, he calls us to love him by loving each other. Another way to put it is that we, that we love vertically only as we love horizontally. We cannot be, and we are not, loving God if we are not loving each other, again, starting in the church. He makes this clear by writing, Love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Clarification needed here is is that Paul is not saying that we can obey the law perfectly. When John the Baptist uh, hesitated to baptize Jesus, um, Jesus said, Let it be so now, 
For this it is fitting for us, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So is that what Paul means here by the one who loves another has fulfilled the law? Well, no way, because then he would have written for the one who loves everyone perfectly all the time and loves God perfectly has fulfilled the law. But only Jesus did that. And he did it for us. He did it in our place in order to earn for us the righteousness credited to us by our faith in him. What Paul means here is the same as 1 Corinthians 13. He means that the end point of the commandments of God is to love one another. And so a final point, the eminent return of Christ. It might seem unexpected that Paul now turns to the return of Christ. Where did this come from? He writes in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far far gone. The day is at hand. Paul is referring to and, and reminding us of the imminent return of Christ. So another piece of his call for us to love one another is is to be always living in expectation of Christ's return. What is needed to bring us to the sacrificial love to which we are called? Well, surely the daily hope of Christ's return, the daily expectation that this will be the day of his second coming when the riches and the glory and the honor of Christ will be ours. So let us remember that that these heavenly blessings are very much already ours, and they are ours by the promise of God. We must wait for it, and that's what faith is. Remember Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we must wait, but we are waiting for what is our already ours, and ours by faith, and by faith alone. When we do so, we do as our Lord Jesus did. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, says much the same thing. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin, that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So that's the same call to obedience in the the Christian life. But it goes on to say, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the Christian life, we must be like our Lord. Even as he endured for the joy set before him, so we must endure for the joy set before us. The great difference, of course, is that he earned his place at the right hand of the Father, so to share it with us. He earned heaven by his obedience, even unto death. And we too must obey even unto death. But our Lord earned heaven for us because he obeyed even unto death, even death on the cross. 
And at the cross, he fulfilled the righteousness that is our salvation. So here now Paul expands his teaching a bit beyond love for one another to, uh, uh, to include how we live in this world. So then let us cast off the, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So there he comes back, does he not, to life in the church and the love that we are uh, to have for one another, not in quarreling and jealousy. And he finishes with these words, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's the return of Christ and our expectation of his second coming that will give us the strength in the face of temptation. Why covet and fight over money, especially with a brother or sister in Christ, when the riches of heaven belong to both of you? Why quibble and fight over interpretations of the law when we know the law has been fulfilled by Christ for us? Why insist on our own way? Why hold grudges? Why not rather be wronged rather than dim the light of Christ within the church. So, brothers and sisters, let us live in daily expectation of the return of Christ. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Let us love sacrificially. Let us love one another within the church. Amen. Let us pray. As we hear your call, Lord Jesus, to love one another, may we remember your great love for us, even the sacrifice that you made for us. And may we then love each other sacrificially. And may you keep us from dishonoring your name as Christians. May we indeed live in love and in peace with one another. May we work hard together, and may Satan not ever divide us. Fill us with your Spirit to this end, that we would love each other within the church. In your name we pray, amen.